we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikori, an executive director of the Center. And today, we're going to talk about a new program related to refugee admissions. And talking about it is going to be Nayla Rush, who is our refugee whisperer, as it were. She's a specialist in this area. Last year, we had her on to talk about something called Uniting for Ukraine, which was a way of involving supposedly private citizens in increasing the number of Ukrainians coming to the United States. And that concept has blossomed into something broader called the Welcome Corps, Corps as in the Marine Corps. And the point of it is, by this administration, is to develop a supposedly private sponsorship program for refugees. This is part of the administration's broader push to increase immigration by any means necessary, in this case in the refugee area, but they're trying to do the same thing everywhere. So, Nayla, thanks for coming in. And if you could just, first of all, give us an idea of what this new program, this Welcome Corps, is. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Mark. Hi, everybody. So, uh, like you just said, it's basically expanding on Uniting for Ukraine, which is a, a program that allowed private sponsors, meaning in that case, these were Ukrainians who had come here following the war and who were given parole and then were allowed to sponsor other Ukrainians under parole. So this kind of worked okay. They did somehow the same thing with the Afghan population. Now it's different because they are tackling the U.S. refugee resettlement program per se, which is a program been here since 1980. And it is very regulated. It has a ceiling, which is set by the president. President Biden set it for 125,000 last year and this year. Anyway, and it has a process whereby the UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, selects and refers refugee for resettlement to the United States and other countries. And you have from the U.S. side agency called the resettlement agencies who welcome the refugees, are paid by the government to do so, and then try to integrate them into American communities. The whole idea is now that it's not the UN who is picking the refugees anymore. It is somebody here, whether it's a private sponsor or an organization, even a resettlement agency organization. We'll talk about the details in a bit. Who will select and assist people, refugees coming here? Remember, a refugee is not like a parolee. They come supposedly for two years. A refugee is somebody who comes and has to apply for a green card. I always repeat that. So these are future American citizens. So whoever came as a refugee 
at one point became a green card holder and perhaps an American citizen, now can sponsor another refugee, select them through this. And this is kind of an expedited, preferential, I would say, program that needs really in-depth analysis. So the people being picked as refugees by these private individuals or organizations they don't have to be people that the UN has already determined to be refugees, or do they? They do. Okay. They do, but people who are resettled are not people who are still in a country of war. These are people who fled, sought asylum and protection in a hosting country, usually in the area nearby their own homes. Like Syrians in Turkey or Afghans in Pakistan, something like that. Exactly. Right. And so... We have, according to UN numbers, the latest ones, I looked, some 21 million refugees worldwide. Now, obviously, not all need to be resettled. By UNHCR's own assessment, some 2 million out of the 21 million need resettlement, meaning it's a lifeline for those even in these hosting countries. They need to get out. They need to be saved out of the 2 million UNHCR refers some 100,000 every year, not just to the U.S., but to many countries who are involved in the program. So point is now, and my question is, how are these going to be selected? The private sponsors here, a refugee maybe, because remember, Mark, it's not just Americans, as we were told. Every day, Americans can now sponsor. It's also a green card holder, and it could very well be a conditional green card holder who is given a green card only for two years with conditions, if the conditions are not removed, he or she would be asked to be removed from the country. So these people are now picking the refugees. On what basis are they going to go to the UN and say, hey, I want to help a refugee. How about you give me? I don't think so. It is outside the UN arena this time. So basically, at least in theory, the way it's worked up to now is the UN picks among all of those refugees that are out there, picks those that it deems need resettling the most. And then those are the ones they refer to countries. And so what this system would do is basically you pick anybody you want. They have to be a refugee, but they don't necessarily have to be somebody that has been judged as being kind of first in line for resettlement because they're most vulnerable. They can be just somebody who's your cousin or from your country, and you can just pick them to be resettled. Whether the UN, in some ideal world, there's obviously fraud and stuff there, but whether the UN would assess their being most in need of resettlement doesn't really matter anymore. No, and that is where I think I have a problem with that, because I already was questioning the UN's sure. picking the lucky few. I'm just so, saying theoretically. Yeah, but, but now it's like, who is picking these lucky few even more? Because is it just because somebody came here a year or so ago, two years ago, then, then, then they would pick a refugee to follow just because they were here? Is it the organizations? Who knows? So ethnic organizations, basically. Yes, you have organizations who are for the Afghans. You have organizations who are for the other nationalities. You have now multiple organizations, a minimum of 200 who said they want to sponsor. And here's where also, Mark, we need to tell your listeners. It is not the private sponsorship as you would think. It's not somebody just deciding, oh, I want to be humanitarian and help. It is true. Probably many are 
with good heart and intentions. However, the condition is that the private sponsor has to come with another four. They have to be five in a community to be able to sponsor. However, you have also organizations who will control and guide and select, perhaps. They say, if you can't select, we'll select for you and fund these private sponsorships. So even the money will not be coming from the private sponsor, but from these organizations. And that's why it's so complicated. The whole private concept of it, perhaps it's just nice and, and as headlines, but I think it doesn't say the total reality. So this is you know, one more example where language, essentially, it's, it's a PR, it's spin. In other words, this is a supposedly private program where you have to put private in quotation marks because a lot of it's end up going to be funded by the government anyway. And the interesting thing is the different organizations that basically will be realistically speaking, selecting who's coming in. It's kind of similar to the parole program at the border using that uh, CBP-1 app that's been talked about. This is not your area specifically, but it's a similar thing where they also have to have a sponsor and there will be these various activist organizations doing it. So in a sense, what this represents is another example of the administration handing over immigration policy to advocacy groups that support it. You have uh, on top somebody controlling the community sponsorship hub, and then you have private sponsor and you have the private sponsor organizations, and it's all controlled by this and funded by the government or by refugee advocates. Which are themselves funded by the government. Exactly. So ultimately, and, and many of them are resettlement agencies who work with the government to Another misleading fact is that we think that this private sponsorship is going to just help the refugee for at least a year or two here. That is not true. All they need to do is come up with $2,275 and assist them for the first three months. Right. And then, of course... They sign them up for welfare. And, and then, uh, then, of right. course, the government uh, th- takes takes uh, charge, which is which is normal. So it is... From all sides, however you want to look at it, it's not really private. And I am puzzled by this selection process, which we are told this process will be expedited, meaning the refugee would be able to come here in a month or two, while others who have been waiting for 18 months, 24 months, will be just left on the side. So uh, these are questions I believe we need to ask ourselves. My question is sort of stepping back from this. Why is the administration doing this? I mean, my sense is that part of the reason for this, maybe the main part of the reason, is that the president can set a ceiling, say, of 125,000. Every year he does it, he can be anything he wants. But within that ceiling of, say, 125,000, which is what it is for the current fiscal year, the government on its own directly doesn't really have the capacity to let that many people in. So is it basically a case of trying to sort of mobilize other resources to get stuff as many people into the United States as possible each year? From what I gather, there are two reasons. Yes, you are correct. One, one of the reasons is that one, to get more people in. However, they say in the first year that the, the, they will seek to mobilize 10,000 Americans only to resettle only 5,000 refugees. If we okay. know that the ceiling is 125,000, so it's not about the numbers. However, right. this community sponsorship hub, which is kind of in charge of everything, has recommended 
that this private sponsorship be used to increase the numbers of refugees resettled in the United States annually with an additional number of refugees resettled via private sponsorship. Oh, so that I is, I think, the ultimate goal, which they will not announce now. So in other words, on top of, to sort of, as an addition to whatever... And probably it'll be more than 125,000 a year. The second reason, I believe, is that refugee resettlement agency, so all this organization here takes time, takes money, I'm, I'm sure they can manage, but resources, translators, uh, meeting somebody at the airport, refugee resettlement agencies, I've talked about that since the Uniting for Re- Ukraine program and then the Afghan uh, Welcome program were overwhelmed. They can do, and you have the border crisis, and they had to also help with the border crisis and all the entrants from there. So I think it is for the government an easy way to say, hey, we'll give you money, you'll say you're doing a good thing, and then we'll be able to have our resettlement agencies deal with real problems we have. So in a sense, it's the same thing. In other words, this is a way of increasing capacity, right? Increasing capacity because resources are limited no matter what. So they need more resources. So they go to private sector and more organization, not just resettlement agencies who are just nine, but other agencies too. Right, right. Interesting. Now, these people, let's say there's an Afghan community group that's, you know, involved in helping an individual be the sponsor, because an individual has to be the sponsor, right, ultimately. They need to come together five. It's, it's okay. the, the group. They call them private sponsor group. So a five, because it's, they say it's easier for a community when they are five. But it still needs to be five actual separate human beings yes. that sign their names to it. But that said, there's going to be an organization that's kind of actually doing the work. This is kind of like my sense is this is kind of like a lawsuit. And they say, well, say an illegal immigrant is suing you know, a company for something. Well, the illegal immigrant isn't suing. He doesn't even know how to do that. He's the name that the organizations with the lawyers use to bring the lawsuit. In a sense, my sense is this is going to work the same way. They're going to find five individuals, but an organization is just going to use them as the names that they put forward to sponsor people from abroad. But Mark, it's not even indirect. It's they say that they assigned organizations to help these private sponsors. Okay. They will guide them every step of the way and mm-hmm. teach them the way. And if need be, give them money for the private yeah. sponsorship. It's it. And if you look at these organizations, numerous are funded by the government, right. not just for resettlement, but for humanitarian causes. So it is all entwined and it is going to unfold. And yes, you're right. I think the numbers and the capacity are two big issues here. So. When I was originally, how I got to there was like, let's say there's an Afghan organization. They want to sponsor Afghans. Well, you probably want to have a security check for somebody coming from the Middle East as a refugee, and it's required anyway. So what kind of, I mean, the private groups aren't doing the security checks, are they? They tell us that the vetting for refugees is still the same. Okay. You know, they go through all these FBI, all, all these measures, and, right. and they tell us. For all it, the good it, that does, but anyway. Yeah. They tell us they are the same. However, the only thing, as I mentioned earlier, the refugees coming through this system will be leaving within a month or two. So, so will they, the security checks be expedited for them or they will stop all the other security checks to check those so 
Interesting. Here too, I have a problem. From the sponsorship side, the U.S. side, the five sponsors have to, to undergo a background check. Now these organizations have made a deal with a private organization dealing with background checks right. called Sterling, and they do a background checks. And the consortium is in charge of making sure that it's been done all good. It's regular background check, you know, criminal record. Right. You know more than me about the what could be in there. So it's regularly you do it online. You pay nineteen dollars, you get the response, and that's it. So, but what you've been talking about the um, mark the selection process. So in Afghan organization or any organization with a specific interest in in a nationality wanting to help Afghans or Ukrainians will come and and pick these five sponsors and say. Hey, how about you sponsor these people from my country? And this is where you come, you becoming picking just because you want this nationality, you want to help this country, while others are waiting as they enter us. Yeah, so it's basically another example in our immigration system, yesterday's immigrants picking tomorrow's immigrants. Even those who might not be able to stay here, like I said, if you have a conditional green card, you know, but at least there's a improvement because with the uniting for Ukraine, you could be on DED, you could be on TPS, you could hold all these on parole, all these temporary statuses, and you could still sponsor you could still somebody. Sponsor, yeah. So under United for you, uniting for Ukraine, you could be an illegal immigrant and sponsor future yeah. immigrants. This at least doesn't do that. The five people whose names are used as the ostensible sponsors, and I put it that way on purpose, have to be either U.S. citizens or green card holders. Mm -hmm. But, you know, honestly, my sense is this is the kind of thing that will be driven by the activist groups that will then recruit five people to be the supposed sponsors, put up the money for them to supposedly sponsor these people. So, so the whole private sponsorship part of it is kind of a charade. What it is, yes, it's private. I mean, a lot of it's funded by the government, but it's not so much individual Americans saying, boy, I want to help somebody from Iraq. It's activist groups recruiting five people to just be the names on the application. It's advocates group with a lot of money and power. Right. It's not like, like you said, they would go five to a church and say, hey, we're a community. Let's Put together 2,000 and bring somebody and, and help them. And then, you know, I'll take him to, to his English lessons. You'll take him to this. Right. It goes far beyond. And that is the, the way they want to portray it. And I'm sure some will, will be willingly doing that. But it goes beyond that. It is totally organized by really, really huge organizations that have been working on this for a long time. And it was coming. It was in waiting since the 2016. New York Declaration. Explain that. That was a UN thing, right? That was the UN thing that was uh, what President Obama and the United Nations came together and they had a conference for refugees and migrants about how to deal with refugees and open legal pathways for refugees, open the private sector, open the education sector, right. uh, sponsor somebody as a student, etc. These were guidelines that the United States signed under the New York Declaration for Refugees and Migrants. But the point here is that it wasn't a treaty. In other words, it wasn't something that we were legally committed to, but this private sponsorship scheme is something that's been cooked up 
way back by the UN. And afterwards, you had two globe good compacts that the US did not sign under President Trump, but that the Biden administration is honoring unofficially. Right. So this New York Declaration for Refugees and Migrants, you're right, it's not binding, but it's it was signed. And also a lot of these organizations that are now going to be part of the sponsorship, private sponsorship, are the ones who pushed for the New York right. and are following through the footsteps. And one of the agreement under this declaration is consider the expansion of existing humanitarian admissions program private sponsorship for individual refugees and opportunity for labor mobility for refugees. Yeah, so this is something that the anti-borders folks have been cooking up for a long time. Not just, In other words, this isn't just a one-time thing somebody in the Biden administration dreamed up. This is something that has been a goal of the other side, and they're now trying to implement this it This has been a goal that started under President Obama and was pushed to and also remember, Mark, this, they talked about the scholarship and student visa. Well, the Welcome Corps, it's not just bringing private sponsors. It will open the opportunities for colleges and universities across the U.S. to sponsor refugee students on their campuses and provide financial aid. And this is under the Welcome Corps. So there's a lot in here. Like I said, the Russian uh, dolls, you open yeah, one, the, there's another right, yeah, one. Yeah, the you, nesting dolls. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. It's, it's only starting, and I'm sure we'll, we'll be back here talking about it. And once you get out of the inside of the doll, matryoshka, they call them in Russian, the middle of it, the little one that you can't open anymore, that's the government. That's the taxpayer <laughs> funding all of this stuff. So, yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing is that the reason you said they're presenting private sponsorship, they're sort of marketing it. As though, you know, it's five people get together at a church and it's like, okay, well, the ladies will donate some clothes and you'll drive them to the English class. That's the way refugee sponsorship worked before the whole refugee system that we have now. Like in the 50s, there were DPs, displaced persons from Europe, and Congress periodically would vote for a certain number to be admitted as refugees. But the way you did a sponsorship is... You sponsored a guy and his wife and kids. And, you know, maybe, uh, in fact, there's one of our colleagues knows somebody like this at a college he went to. After World War II, the man, they gave him a job as a janitor at the college. And then his wife and kids and, you know, the, the people at the community got together and somebody donated some furniture and somebody else donated some clothes for the kids, that kind of thing. But they were totally on the hook for it. There was no welfare office for three months later to go and sign them up at, and then they were out of your hair. Now, it's a charade. The private part of it is deceptive in a whole bunch of ways, not just the you talked about. It's actually advocacy groups, many of them funded by the government that are really doing this. But also, ultimately, and this is the case even with regular refugee resettlement, they're eligible for all government benefits. And so after three months, you just what you, your role is you drive them to the welfare office, sign them up, and bingo, there's no more private sponsorship. It becomes a taxpayer burden. It's not about 90 days. It's a lifetime because it's good to remind our listeners, this is a refugee is going to become a U.S. citizen. And the difference between Denmark and today is these organizations are so organized and powerful and they are, I think, leading the way and even whispering to the government. 
I'm not just a refugee, a whisperer. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And the interesting thing is, this, of course, will create then a kind of lobby that tries to protect this program from a new administration that might come in and say, okay, well, we're going to discontinue this. Because this isn't in law. This is something the administration has just made up on its own. Congress could end this if they wanted to. Yeah, and also you should ask the states, what, what is their say on, in that subject? Because they, all these supposedly private sponsors and the organization are deciding in which communities these people are going. I want 100 Afghan in this community. I want 100 uh, Nepali in this community. So you see, and then what happens to the states and then the communities themselves who perhaps are not as enthusiastic about this whole idea. So, And that's a problem even with current, even with the regular refugee system, is that is the true. 1980 Refugee Act supposedly says they're supposed to consult or in consultation, I think is the wording, with the local communities. And it really, it's, that's, again, it's pretty deceptive. It's, it's only followed in, um, you know, nominally. Well, President Trump tried to give states a, a, a voice in accepting or not accepting refugees, but it didn't go anywhere. And uh, perhaps now lawmakers will look into this and see uh, what's, what's the deal here. Well, maybe some different lawmakers than the ones we have now. <laughs> yeah. but, so there's going to be a report on this at some point on our website, maybe before we broadcast this. Uh, if, and if so, then we'll have a link in the show notes. Any final thoughts on this? Any sort of where this might point in the long run? I mean, it seems like this could take over the whole of refugee resettlement conceivably. What puzzles me is this this whole new system, private sponsorship when it's not really private, but allowing people to come here just because somebody is here, whether it was illegally or legally, paroli or non-paroli, etc. This new door that is opening and with the excuse and perhaps justified of humanitarian need and uh, good heart, etc. But this is, it's immigration here. They have to have laws and opening this door wider and wider to more and more populations with the power of all these organizations and the money of the philanthropists. That is kind of perhaps something we need to keep track of because it's just the, the beginning. Right. Okay. Well, good, good. That's a good place to end on. As this expands, if it does, we'll uh, have you back to talk about it some more. But this has been Nayla Rush, who has written on what's called the Welcome Corps, which is something the Biden administration is doing in order to kind of privatize refugee resettlement, at least ostensibly, even though tax money ends up paying for it at the end of the day, a lot of it anyway. Thank you, Nayla, and we will uh, revisit this as it continues to develop, or even if somehow it ends, we'll talk about that too in the future. Thank you. You're welcome. And finally, I wanted to just draw your attention to something we posted this week on our website, cis.org. It sounds kind of boring and bureaucratic, but it's actually pretty important. The title of it is USCIS Publishes Its Strategy for FY 2023-26. to This is the USCIS's U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is in charge of all of the immigration benefits side, the green cards and all of the citizenship and what have you. And they publish the strategic plan, which is the administration's attempt really to lock in its perspective 
for a number of years, even into the next presidential term, because this is supposedly goes through 2026. And Elizabeth Jacobs, one of our analysts, went through it and basically offered four groups of recommendations, recommendations in four areas on what USCIS's long-term plan or medium-term, I guess, in this sense, should be if it's interested in protecting the interests of its main stakeholders, which are the American people, and then also applicants for immigration benefits and doing all of that within the limits of the law, which is with this administration a big problem. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing. You can read it at CIS.org. But for instance, one of the things she highlighted was if we want to facilitate the highest skilled workers being able to get into the United States through the existing worker programs. And again, let me emphasize, these are recommendations within existing law, not recommendations on how to change the statute itself, which is a different question. But if we have, for instance, the H-1B program, one of the things Liz recommends is why don't we do what the Trump administration had tried to do and prioritize the highest paid workers first. So when there's a lottery, which there there is, for H-1B visas, why don't we just, instead of a lottery, give the visas to the highest offered salary first? The point of that is companies, by offering a higher salary, are communicating that these are the workers they want the most, they value the most, and are likely to create the greatest economic output. So she has some other recommendations, for instance, about improving the asylum system and deterring fraud which the USCIS strategic plan doesn't even address. Eliminate, one of the things Liz suggested, was eliminate these unlawful programs that the Biden administration has concocted to increase the number of people in the country, not just uh, separate from what we talked about earlier, the refugee program. That's, it's not clear. That's probably not unlawful because they're working within the law, but there are all kinds of other things the administration is doing parole programs that are siphoning away resources and time from what USCIS is supposed to do. And then the last group of recommendations was strengthening the E-Verify program. USCIS oversees E-Verify. That's the online system that employers can use to make sure they're hiring only legal workers. And she has several recommendations, some of which she's written about before, some not on how to strengthen that and make it do what it's supposed to do. So this is basically a look at what a blueprint, if you will, on what USCIS should be doing in reaction to USCIS's blueprint, kind of vague and vaporous blueprint without a lot of specifics about what they do intend to do over the next three years. And that would obviously assume that there isn't some change with a new administration at the beginning of 2025. Like I said, that's on our website at cis.org if you're interested. If you have any comments or complaints or suggestions or questions, just email us at center at cis.org. And if there's anything relevant, we'll address it. I may even address it on the air. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in. I want to thank our producer, Brian Griffith. And I hope you will join us next week.